0: Have you ever heard of southern hospitality? That's something that you'll experience if you ever come down our way and visit in the south. There's a cordialness and a politeness and a generosity and a kindness and a friendliness that exists down south. But I've discovered that there's one thing better than southern hospitality, and that's Christian hospitality. And I have received great Christian hospitality this weekend. And Damien and Karen, thank you so much for being such gracious hosts and hostess. Thanks, Pastor Tom, for picking me up at the airport. And I so much appreciate all the good folks I've met. And I've enjoyed my time here in Modesto. And whenever you're our way, make sure you stop in and eat some grits with us. We'd love to have you. Let me also say a word um, about the work that you're doing down in Mississippi and Louisiana. Oh, God bless you for, for your heart for these people. This hurricane was incredible. The damage was incredible. They're going to be working down there probably recovering for the next five years. Our church has done a lot of work down there, and uh, we provided some oversight in the early stages of, of the recovery. And so as much as you can continue to do, as many times as you can go, it's much appreciated. And I know that uh, the folks down in Mississippi, Louisiana, are grateful for your Christian compassion. Well, tonight we're in Genesis chapter 29. And just out of curiosity, how many married couples do we have here tonight? Well, good, good. Genesis chapter 29. (coughs) And the title of my message is Loving Your Leah. (laughs) And let's pray before we get started. Father, thank you so much. For your great grace and your wonderful mercy. And Lord, the more we just enjoy and abide and rest in you, the stronger we become. We are healed under your wings. We are strengthened. We're fortified and refreshed. And Lord, I pray tonight that you'll do another refreshing, another encouraging And that you would bless us, Lord, in our homes, in our hearts, in our marriages, in our future, those that are single in future marriages. Lord, we just pray that you would do a great work tonight. We thank you that you like to bless us. And we ask that you do so by your spirit, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 29, let's begin reading in verse 1. So Jacob went on his journey, and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked, and he saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We're from Haran. Then he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And so he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Then he said, Look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and they have rolled the stone from the whale's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. Then it came to pass, when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. John Robert Ford is from Williamson, West Virginia. But this Mr. Ford, he gets around. For while in Lexington, Kentucky, he met a woman. He fell in love, and he asked her to be his wife. She accepted, and they were married. But you see, John Ford was not exactly honest with his bride. He pretended to be something that he was not. He told her that he was... Actually, the legendary quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, Joe Montana. The woman married Ford thinking that she had become Mrs. Montana. Well, when their picture appeared in a Nashville newspaper under the caption, Mr. and Mrs. Montana, it was spotted by another woman, another of John Ford's wives. She said that Ford had told her that he was the piano player for Hank Williams, Jr. It's obvious that John Robert Ford is four things. He is a liar. He is an imposter. He is a bigamist. And he thinks he's a Hall of Fame quarterback. It may surprise you, but in this evening study, we find the same four ingredients. We've got a liar named Laban. We've got an imposter by the name of Leah. We've got a bigamist named Jacob. And in just a moment, I'll show you the quarterback. Tonight, we're going to take an interesting look at Genesis chapter 29. Welcome to a love story, but a love story with a twist. A man named Jacob leaves home to start a life and find a wife. He journeys to a Middle Eastern watering hole in Haran where he meets a gorgeous young shepherdess named Rachel. Verse 17 says that Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. In other words, both her face and her figure were attractive. She was a cover girl working as a shepherd. Stunningly beautiful. Call her a fox in sheep's clothing. (laughs) the stone that covered the opening of the well was huge and heavy and the shepherds usually waited on each other's arrival to water their flocks it took a combined effort to move the stone but when Rachel arrives verse 10 tells us that Jacob flexed his pecs and he moved the stone all by himself nothing like a little macho demonstration of muscle to try and impress a girl But it worked for in verse 11, we read, then Jacob kissed Rachel. And I told you a quarterback factored into the story. We know that Jacob at least thought he was a quarterback because here he makes a pass at Rachel. (laughs) He kisses her. You know, it's been said, a boy becomes a man when he decides it's more fun to steal a kiss than second base. Well, Jacob is growing up. He plants a kiss on this ravishing Rachel, and we're told in verse 11, Jacob lifted up his voice and wept. Recently, I heard of a woman over in Alabama whose pet iguana stopped breathing, and she had to give the animal mouth to mouth resuscitation. And afterwards she cried because she realized that she had kissed an iguana. (laughs) Trust me, this is not why Jacob is crying. This is not the source of his tears. His tears are tears of joy. He thinks he's found the woman of his dreams. He's weeping for joy. But beginning in verse 16, the plot thickens. For Rachel immediately takes her new boyfriend home to meet dad. And Jacob should have been warned. For a young man fresh from mama's house was no match for a shrewd dude like Laban. Read with me in verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. And here is the twist in the love story. In Haran, as in parts of the Middle East, even to this very day, it was contrary to custom for the younger daughter to marry before her elder sister. Thus Leah becomes a roadblock in Jacob's plans to marry Rachel. And what made matters worse, the prospects of Leah marrying anytime soon seem slim. For she had an awful problem. We're told in verse 17, Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now this phrase, Leah's eyes were delicate, can mean one of two things. First, it can refer to the health of Leah's eyes. That they were these weak, squinted eyes, perhaps even cross-eyed. Rachel had these deep, beautiful, mesmerizing pools set above her cheeks. Leah had these little slits on both sides of her face. I mean, awful looking eyes. But the phrase, Leah's eyes were delicate can also be interpreted. Leah was a cause for sore eyes. In other words the girl was so ugly when you looked at her it made your eyes hurt. (laughs) Either way Rachel's sister Leah was not a very physically attractive young lady. There's a woman's college in the town of Ugly England and a spokeswoman for the institute was quoted recently as saying we try to call ourselves the Women's Institute of Ugly But the name never sticks. And I'm sure the women of the school are glad that the name never sticks. But old Leah, she could have graduated magna cum laude from the Women's Institute of Ugly. Rachel was a sight for sore eyes. Poor Leah made your eyes sore. Now when Laban offered Jacob a job and told him to set his own wages... Jacob makes an interesting request. Verse 18 reads, Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. No doubt that long length of time showed the depth of Jacob's love for Rachel. It probably also showed how long he thought it would take for Leah to find a man to marry first. But verses 19 and 20 tell us, And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And notice this. And they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. What an incredible statement. His love for Rachel made the time fly. Before we go further... I'd like to say a word tonight to those of you who are single. Here is how you tell the difference between love and lust. Lust can never wait to get, but love can always wait to give. Love doesn't mind waiting. Infatuation pushes the issue. It rushes into things. Love waits. Lust pushes for what we want rather than waiting for God's best. But love is willing to wait. Love is patient. Love is kind. It reminds me, though, of a poem I once read entitled Marriage at an Early Urge. Nice night in June. Stars shine. Big moon. Own date with girl. Heart pound, head swirl. Happy boy, happy girl. Me say, me love. She coo like dove. Me smart, me fast. Never let chance pass. Get hitched, me say. She say, okay. Wedding bells, ring ring. Honeymoon, everything. Settled down, married life, happy man, happy wife. Another night in June, stars shine, big moon, ain't happy no more, carry baby, walk floor. (laughs) Wife sad, me mad, life one big spat, nagging wife, bawling brat. Me realize at last, me too, too fast. (laughs) I'm telling you, love is willing to wait. Hey, love takes its time. It learns its lessons. It looks to God. It was no big deal for Jacob to wait seven years for Rachel, for he truly loved her. And she was worth the wait. The willingness to wait is even after marriage. The willingness to wait is always a demonstration of real love. Well, the story continues in verses 21 and 22. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now the marriage feast in those days lasted a whole week. And so for seven days they partied hardy. And by the time the wedding night rolled around, Jacob was sauced. I mean, he was really tanked. Verse 23 tells us, Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Now in addition to Jacob being inebriated, the brides at the time wore these heavy veils, these long flowing robes. And since there were no electric lights in the honeymoon cottage, Jacob thought that he was going to bed with his beloved Rachel. Verse 25 fast forwards about eight hours. So it came to pass in the morning that behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Again, Jacob kisses a girl and starts to weep. But this time for a much different reason. He has kissed the iguana. (laughs) He has spent the night with old lizard lips Leah. In verse 26, Laban stuns Jacob with his answer. It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Oh my, what an ironic twist of fate. If you know your Old Testament, you'll recall that before leaving home, Jacob had stolen the rights of the firstborn from his older brother Esau. He had spit in the eye of custom and now custom is spitting back. Jacob, the deceiver, gets deceived. What goes around comes around. This is why honesty is always the best policy. Now this Laban, he's a sly guy. He's a crafty bargainer. And he makes Jake an offer of his own. In verse 27 he says, Fulfill her week... And we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. He'll give Rachel to Jacob now, but in return he'll have to serve Laban an additional seven years. Never doubt Jacob's initial love for Rachel. For in verse 28 we read, Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, so he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. And in verse 30, we're told, Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. Jacob ends up agreeing to serve for Rachel a total of 14 14 years. Now the question arises, what should Jacob have actually done? And it's my opinion... That Jacob should have never married Rachel. Nowhere in the Bible does God approve of bigamy. A man was never meant to have multiple wives. In Matthew chapter 19 verses 4 through 6. Our Lord Jesus himself lays out God's ideal for marriage. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. When God created marriage, he didn't join two men, he didn't join two women, nor was it one man and two women, or two men and one woman. God's blueprint for marriage was one man and one woman in a lifetime relationship. God tolerated bigamy in the same way that He tolerates divorce today. But understand, He never gave it His stamp of approval. In fact, Jesus Himself condemned bigamy. You remember the verse, Matthew 6, verse 24. Jesus said, No man can serve two masters. (laughs) Obviously, God never intended for a man to be married to two women. Recently, Middle Eastern archaeologists have unearthed a cuneiform tablet, and they've deciphered the reading on it, and it's entitled, The Top Ten Reasons No Man in His Right Mind Would Want Two Wives. And here's the translation from the ancient Semitic Chaldean. Number 10, twice as many birthdays and anniversaries to remember. Number 9, you have to pick who gets the second garage door opener. Number 8, by the time two wives take a shower, there's no more hot water. Number 7, who can afford two dozen roses on Valentine's Day? Number 6, when it comes to choices, it's now two against one. Number 5 your one drawer and half a foot of closet space gets cut in half. Number four, two honey-do lists. Number three, do you really want to decide who gets the master bedroom? Number two, two mother-in-laws? And the number one reason why no man in his right mind would want two wives, and I'm just the guest speaker, I get to leave on an airplane tomorrow. EMS twice a month? (laughs) Hey, apparently Jacob never read this top 10 list, for if he had, he would have added one more reason why two wives are not a good idea. They might not get along. And Jacob's family becomes a sordid example of infighting and envy and bitterness and hatred and deception and manipulation. Later, when Rachel names one of her maid sons, she calls him Naphtali, or my wrestling. And she says, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister. My Jacob lived and his kids were raised in the middle of two warring women. Trust me, this was not a happy home. The story reminds me of an Italian man who was getting married and ceremony was outside and on the day of the wedding a he- big heavy fog rolled in off the ocean and it was so thick that he got confused and, and-, and by accident he-, he actually married two women and-, and later he was asked to explain his mistake and he said mine it was it was a big mist." <laughs> that's terrible it was a big a mist. A big a mist. A big a mist. That didn't work back in my church either. I don't know why I tried it again. I believe Jacob should have never married Rachel. He should have left with Leah and learned to be content. But you say, come on Sandy. The girl was ugly as mud. He didn't even love her. How can you say he should have left with Leah? Guys, I honestly believe that even if Jacob didn't love her, if the two of them had conducted their marriage God's way, Jacob would have eventually loved Leah every bit as much as he loved Rachel. For love grows when marriage is done God's way. You know, it sounds funny saying it, but the feeling of love is a far overrated ingredient when it comes to success in marriage. Oh, this feeling of love is important in courtship, but in marriage, it's way overblown. Successful marriages are built on commitment, not feeling. I've seen marriages where the love was depleted, but the husband and the wife decided to stick it out and do things God's way, and love started to grow again. On the other hand, I've seen marriages where love was abounding, but the couple ignored God's guidelines, and love dwindled as the marriage broke apart. You know, if I wanted to plant a garden, and I had the best seed available, but if I buried that seed in sorry, scorched, superficial soil, I don't care how good the seed was, it would fail to germinate. Yet if I took inferior seed, but nestled it in the midst of fertile and nutritious and moist dirt, even the sick seed would grow in the healthy soil. And so it is in marriage. Give me two people who can't stand each other. And encourage that couple to do marriage God's way, to interact through God's love. And their love will grow out of nowhere. I have seen it happen. And husbands, as the leader in the family, why don't you be the first to start? In a letter to his daughter, Charlie Shedd communicates some important advice. Marriage is not so much finding the right person as it is being the right person. Now that's worth the price of admission tonight. Marriage is not so much finding the right person as it is being the right person. You see, the dating game emphasizes finding the right person and relying on chemistry to cement the marriage. But when the chemistry eventually dries up, we blame our former Mr. or Mrs. Right. He or she must not have been the right one after all. We remind ourselves that there are other fish in the sea. And so we throw back our current spouse and rebate the hook. We keep kissing frogs thinking we'll finally find our prince. And it never dawns on some folks that the problem might be them. I honestly believe that you can take a man and a woman who've never seen each other but are determined to do marriage God's way, the man willing to love his wife as Christ loves the church, the woman willing to follow her husband as the church is to follow Christ, each of them caring and serving each other and showing compassion and giving time and sharing their hearts and living their lives for each other. You put those two people together and they will end up happily married. Believe it or not, this is what happened between Jacob and Leah. As we're told in verse 30, in the beginning, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. But there is strong evidence that slowly, over time, Jacob's initial feelings began to change. Look in verses 31 and 32. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. And at first, man, your heart just breaks for Leah. She's longing for her husband's love. But notice what happens next. In verse 33 we're told, Then she conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, He has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. Obviously she kept laboring to make her marriage better. Of course all that's mentioned are her three labors, but I'm sure she worked in other ways to improve her marriage as well. Finally, verse 35 tells us, And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. And the implication is is that the labor had finally paid off. For with the birth of Judah, she praises God. Her desires are finally fulfilled. At last, she experiences the joy and the enjoyment of marital love and no longer needs to bear another child to gain her husband's favor. Now, when you jump ahead to the end of Jacob's life, you find him making an interesting choice. In Genesis chapter 49, on his deathbed, with his last breath, he makes a final request. And there he says, Bury me in the cave where they buried Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and where I buried Leah. You would think that Jacob would want his final resting place to be next to Rachel back in Bethlehem. But no, he asked to be buried in Mamre alongside Leah. Oh, on the first night of their marriage, he resented lying next to Leah. But at the end of their road together, it was his utmost desire. Jacob wanted to make sure that until the resurrection, his bones would lay next to Leah's. Apparently, his heart had turned. It's ironic, but Rachel died prior to Leah. Thus, Leah was the wife who ended up with Jacob all to herself. It was Jacob and Leah who enjoyed growing old together. It's also interesting that it was through Leah, not Rachel, that Judah was born. And you know the Messiah came through the tribe of Judah. Thus Jesus was of the lineage of Leah, not Rachel. Perhaps this was God's way of putting his stamp of approval on the union between Jacob and Leah. The royal line came through their marriage, their union. Oh, in the beginning, we're told Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. But in the end, apparently the roles were reversed. Oh, lizard lips, Leah became Jacob's beloved. On that awful morning, when Jacob awoke to discover that he was lying next to Leah, that he had been double-crossed, he didn't seek an annulment, he realized that with God there are no accidents that God is sovereign, that nothing happens in our lives that He does not at least allow. On that morning, Jacob accepted his wife and he built a life with Leah. Perhaps you've always felt that your marriage was somewhat of a double cross. She was pregnant and you felt it was your duty. Her home life had soured and your good job made for a convenient escape the marriage was expected you both were pressured you were too young you weren't seeking God hey you need to realize just as Jacob did none of that matters for marriage is sacred a vow is binding in God's plan once you say I do you did in his sovereignty God allowed the two of you to get married the almighty could have stopped it but he chose not to and now it's up to you to accept it and to make the best of it. You remember that old song from the 70s? I think it was written by Stephen Stills. If you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with. Well, that's biblical. I guess it's sort of biblical. Ask Pastor Damien later. He'll, he'll tell you whether it's biblical or not. I'm... I'm getting on an airplane. (laughs) Here's something I do know is biblical. If you really love the one you're with the way God wants you to love her, you won't want anybody else. You might be stuck with a Leah, but if you let him, God can turn your Leah into a lover. Years ago, prior to first teaching this passage, I prayed, Lord, what a sordid mess. Deception and bigamy and constant infighting. What a terrible marriage. Lord, how can I possibly apply this to the marriages at Calvary Chapel? And I believe that the Lord gave me a figurative application that speaks to us today. And And I know it goes a bit beyond the context of the passage, but it's not unbiblical in what it teaches. Guys, I believe that just like Jacob, every married person here this evening is in a sense married to two people. If you're a man, you're married to both a Leah and a Rachel. If you're a woman, you're married to both a and a Ray. <laughs> Hear me out. Every married person is wedded to a Rachel. Oh, this is the part of your spouse you love dearly. This is the part of your spouse you were attracted to. You absolutely adore. This is the person who fires your engine and steams your glasses. You could be forced to wait seven long years for her, but your love for her would cause it to seem but just a few days. But... Oh, you're also married to a Leah, for this is the part of your spouse that was a surprise. (laughs) When you married your mate, you knew you were getting this Rachel, but oh, you didn't know about this Leah. Lee is the ornery and ugly and selfish side of your spouse. Leah is the side of your spouse that was covered up and veiled and hidden before the marriage vows were taken. Yes, we are also hitched to a Leah. In every marriage, there are mornings just like the day after Jacob's wedding night when you roll over and you look at your spouse hoping to see a Rachel and instead you start to cry, Oh no, it's Leah. Man, I have kissed the iguana. (laughs) It's been noted In rural Japan, a man's wife is chosen for him by his parents. And he doesn't know who she is until after the wedding. Though the custom in America is completely different, the end result is the same. (laughs) Hey, I don't care how long you date before you marry. Seven months or seven days or seven years or 17 years. You'll never learn all there is to know about your spouse. Believe me, in every marriage, there are some definite surprises after the wedding day. Guys, there are aspects of your spouse that resemble Leah. The blemishes were there from the beginning, but you were drunk on love and you didn't see them. Your spouse is not what you thought and it's a shock when you realize it. So the question becomes, what do you do with a Leah? Or with Ali. Well, the first morning Jacob saw her, he complained to Laban. But what did he do the next morning? Or the next? Or the morning after he left Laban's house? Here's what Jacob does. Look again in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Jacob began to see that the fruitfulness in his life was coming from Leah, not Rachel. The offspring, the heritage, the growth, the fruit was being supplied by Leah. Oh yeah. Rachel was still the choice for a good time. I mean, he was, she was certainly the one he took to the company picnic to try to impress his bosses. But over time, Jacob realized that God's blessing was more on Leah than on Rachel. God used Leah more than Rachel to grow his family. Surprisingly, spiritual life and fruitfulness came more through old sore eyes than through the cover girl. And here is the application to our lives today. It is often the rough edges of... And the ugly traits and the ornery attitudes in our spouse that cause us to grow and to mature spiritually. Oh, when I'm loving and sensitive and compassionate, when I console and encourage my wife, I minister to her. But when I test her patience and push her kindness and tax her endurance and stretch her faith... I force her to trust in Jesus, and he ministers to her. You could put it like this. When Sandy is at his best, he causes Kathy to glow. But when Sandy is less than his best, he causes Kathy to grow. Fruitfulness flowed into Jacob's life through ugly Leah rather than through gorgeous Rachel. And the fruit of God's Holy Spirit will flow into your life when your spouse's blemishes force you to go to the Lord and draw upon Him and ask for His strength. When my wife looks to me and I cause sore eyes, it forces her to look to Jesus and she receives a blessing. Now don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting that there are no limits or boundaries to an acceptance of a spouse's behavior. For example, I do not believe that a spouse should ever stand idly by and bear with an abusive or a promiscuous mate. These are not the traits that Leah represents. When a person tolerates a beating or a cheating, it makes them an accomplice to the crime. You become a part of the problem rather than part of the solution. I'm simply suggesting that you learn to accept your spouse's humanness. You see, this is what Leah represents. Humanness. I mean, it's no sin to be ugly. And I'm sure that, that Leah, I mean, she couldn't help her ugliness. And I'm sure she did the best with what she had. I mean, she styled her hair and went out and bought a lot of makeup. A lot of makeup. And she bought these long veils, beautiful, beautiful veils. And likewise, all married people should do the best, do their best to be the best that they can be. But the real breakthrough in this relationship came when Jacob learned to accept his wife unconditionally. Yes, we all should want to get better, but we all need to face the fact that no matter how hard we try, none of us are ever going to be perfect. Leah turned out to be a diamond in the rough. But Jacob never saw her beauty until he gave up trying to change her and he accepted his situation. It is a wise man, a wise woman who stops trying to change their Leah or their Lee. It's true. The only time a woman succeeds in changing a man is when he's a baby. I like the old adage, women marry men expecting to change them, while men marry women thinking they will never change. Both get disappointed. Husband, wife, it's not for you to change your spouse. Your job is to love your spouse. God will change your spouse if he or she needs to be changed. I heard a wonderful story of a wife whose husband bought her a brand new car. She was driving the car when she was in an accident in the grocery store parking lot. It was all her fault. And she was so worried about how her husband would react. Well, When the police finally arrived, they asked her for her proof of insurance. And so she opened up the glove box, and along with her card, she found a note. And it made her cry. In fact, the policeman asked her what was wrong. All she could do amidst her tears was hand him the note. It was from her husband. And this is what it read. Honey, in case of an accident, just remember, it's you I love, not the car. Here's a husband who decided in advance to just simply love his Leah. Guys, this is how you turn a Leah into a lover. You accept her or him, for better or for worse. Didn't the vows say that? For better or for worse? Love your spouse for who they are, warts and all, sore eyes or not. It reminds me of the hillbilly wife who was commenting on her wedding vows. She told her friends, them there vows say for better or worse. Because he ain't going to get no better and he can't get no worse. So I take him as is. (laughs) Hey, Leah was probably as ugly the day Jake buried her as the day he married her. But somewhere along the way, Jacob learned to accept her as is. And guys, this is what each of us need to do for the Leah or the Lee in our spouse. Unconditional acceptance is the miracle cure. It frees up the Leah from the pressure and the insecurity of never measuring up. And trust me, we're all better and more lovable when we know we can be ourselves and still be accepted. It also frees up the Jacob from these impossible expectations that always hang sort of a cloud of failure and disappointment over the marriage. The Jake in all of us needs to stop mourning over what ain't and what can't and begin to enjoy what is. Sometimes we get so fixated on the 10% negative in our spouse that we forget the 90% positive. We forget that Leah and Rachel live side by side on her 50th wedding anniversary a wife shared her secret to her long but happy marriage she said on my wedding day I decided to make a list of ten of my husband's faults which for the sake of our marriage I would overlook a guest at the reception asked her what ten faults went down on her list that's when the woman sort of shrugged and she answered well to tell you the truth I never got around to listing them. But whenever my husband made me hop in mad, I would say to myself, lucky for him, that's one of the ten. Forgiveness and mercy and kindness and tolerance and acceptance and gentleness and patience, compassion, you know, that's all stuff that we as Christians are supposed to be good at. And guys, those are also the ingredients that transform a Leah into a lover. Hey, each one of us wants and expects our mate to accept the Lee in us. But this evening, why don't you ask God to help you accept the Leah in her? Husband. It is time for you to give your wife a break. She is doing the best she can. The kids are so demanding. Her job is never over. She needs your time and attention. And wife, cut your husband some slack. I know he's not where he needs to be, but look at how far the old boy's come. And he carries a lot of responsibility, and he really does love you and those kids. He wants to be a godly man, support him, even when he doesn't do all for you that you would like. You see, each married person has a choice. We can focus on the thorns that are on the rose, or we can focus on the rose that is among the thorns. Our cup is half empty or it's half full. It's up to us. If you want a successful marriage, it is high time you decide to simply love your Leah. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the encouragement to the couples here tonight. Lord, I pray that you'll bless the marriages of this church. Lord, I know that this church will only be as strong as the marriages, as the husbands and wives and their commitment to each other. That's the foundation. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to accept the humanness in our spouse. Help us to remember that none of us are perfect. Oh, Lord, help us to worry about the plank that's in our own eye rather than the splinter that's in our husband's eye or our wife's eye. Help us, Lord, to judge not lest we be judged. And help us, Lord, to just simply, just simply... Love our Leah, for better or worse. Give us that love, Lord. We we know about that love because that's the kind of love with which you've loved us. Help us, Lord, to love our spouse that same way. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Sandy Adams. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Sandy's teaching ministry by visiting sandyadams.org.